We've been studying the book of Genesis line by line and verse by verse and chapter by chapter on Wednesday nights. And what we are discovering and learning is that the, the, the book in its totality, all 50 chapters, is really a, 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 a conglomeration of records that were compiled and edited uh, by Moses. And, and of course, we know that the Spirit of God uh, spoke to him and filled in the blanks and, and that he was inspired by God uh, as these things were written down. Um, but we've been studying what, what, what it, what's called in the Hebrew these toldots or these records. And so there's like 9, 10, or 11 of these things that have all been put together. And in the English language, that the word, when it comes to a new record or a new segment, it says, these are the generations of. And that's kind of our cue that, that this is the beginning of a new portion or a new segment uh, of the book of Genesis. And, and there's like nine of them that go through. And so there was the generations of the heaven and the earth and the creation account was given there. And then there was the generations of Noah and his sons. And then the generation of Abraham, of Terah, his father, and then of Abraham and the generations of Isaac. And, and where we are as we come to chapter 35 is we're in the closing segment, the final chapter of what is the record of Isaac, the only son of Abraham. It started back in chapter 25, verse 19, and it finishes at the end of chapter 35. So really the last 10, 11 chapters have all been uh, this toldot or this record of Isaac, the son of Jacob. Now the interesting thing is that of all 10 or 11 of these chapters, very little of it has really been about Isaac. Most of it has really been about Jacob as it goes on. And I find that extremely interesting uh, thing to consider. One of the things that, uh, that I'm, I'm kind of learning in this phase of my Christianity and, and my walk with the Lord uh, concerning this Christian life is, is that it, it really is a race. You know, the Bible likens the Christian walk unto a race in a lot of different places. Hebrews chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You know, this illustration of, of running this race. And early on in my Christian life, I, I really kind of thought that it was a sprint. You know, just all out for the Lord, giving it everything I've got. And, and, and that's normal and that's good. You know, but I found that the Christian life isn't a sprint, and over time I realized that it's more of a marathon, that you have to pace yourself somewhat, and you're in it for the long haul, and it's the whole life, and, you know, and it's more of a marathon. And, I, and then I kind of lived that way for a while. But as I'm coming to where I am now, I'm realizing that it's not a marathon, that the Christian life is not a sprint or a marathon. Really, the Christian life is a relay. And the reason it's a relay is because it's not just about me. See, if it was a sprint or a marathon, then it's of individual consequence. Meaning that what happens to me in this or how I choose to go about it is really my business. I set the pace. I can come in first and aim to come in first. Or I can come in last. Or I could just say, well, I'm not really running to win. I just want to finish. And if I cross the finish line, I'll be happy. And if I get disqualified or if I quit, that's my business. And it doesn't really matter because this is my course and my run. The problem is that that's completely false. It's not true. See, in a marathon, the success of the team is essential and paramount. When I'm in a marathon, how hard I run 
benefits or hinders everyone else on the team. And the passing of the baton is essential. Meaning that the way that I make the transition to those that run after me makes a difference to how well we finish the race that we're in. See, it's not just about us. It's about those whom we're ministering to and for and those that we're going to leave behind, the next generation. And so I find it interesting that the testimony of Isaac's life is completely filled with the story of Jacob. It's the next generation that God is looking towards. And I believe that here as we come to the end of really Jacob's story, Jacob is beginning to realize this himself, that it's not about Jacob. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's about what God has designed my place to be in the big picture of his kingdom and what that means for my children and future generations moving forward. And I think that's an important thing for you and I to come to the realization of sooner rather than later. That what we do in the Lord and for the Lord in this life isn't about us. It's not about you. It's about who's coming after you and your part in setting them up for the furtherance of God's kingdom and his glory. And thus we're learning these things in scripture that we understand that we're to run hard, not because it matters so much to us, it does, but it does matter to our kids. And our preparation to pass the baton to the next generation And to leave for them an example of what it means to run and how to run and why we're running is of the utmost importance. And so we see it in the life of Jacob. I think of Psalm 103. It's a classic psalm. It's the one where God says that he'll cast our sins as far as the east is from the west and that he'll remember them no more. But he says that, He he considers our frame. He knows that we're dust. His compassions, they don't fail. His mercies are given. But then he says this. He says that the glory of man is like the flower of the field. It springs up, and then the sun hits it. It withers, and it dies. And then it says this. It says that the place where it was, the ground where it was, remembers it no more. And and we understand that, right? A dandelion or even a wildflower just pops up in the yard. It lives its lifespan, and then it's gone. And you say, I don't even really know where exactly it was. And God's saying that your life and my life is like that weed or that wildflower in the field. It grows up, it blossoms, it's glorious, but eventually it's going to fade away, and the place where it was won't even remember what it was. We must understand that, is that it's not about us. It's not about my individual petals and the aroma that I give off. That's important while I'm here. But life is going to go on after me, and what am I leaving behind to successive generations that will be for God's glory and the furtherance of his kingdom. Well, as we come to the end of Jacob, he's finally realizing that it's not about him. It's about those that will come after him. Now, where we left off with him at the end of chapter 34, he's probably at the lowest of low points within his life. We saw that Jacob was completely outside of the will of God. Locationally, he wasn't where he was supposed to be. Spiritually, he wasn't what he was supposed to be. Mentally, he was outside of God's will. He wasn't engaged in the will of God. We see that his family was completely a mess. His daughter had been raped because of the influence that Jacob had subjected her to. We see that his sons became mass murderers. 
genocidal in their behavior. And then they became thieves, grand theft, really. They just robbed an entire village. And you thought you were bad parents, you know, and that your kids were messed up. Man, you couldn't possibly sit here tonight and say that your kids are worse than Jacob's kids. He's in a very, very, very low point within his life. And he finds himself in a place where he needs to get right with God, to be right with God, and to run right for God for the future of his family and for God's plan. Now, you would think if you were watching Jacob on the outside, or maybe if you were Jacob and you were standing in his shoes, you would think that he'd be disqualified, wouldn't you? Man, I've messed things up so much, and I've caused such problems to God, and I've marred my testimony so far that I'm just disqualified from this race. I might as well just quit altogether. You'd think that if you were Jacob, or you'd think that of Jacob. But understand, here's hope, is that it's never that way with God. God knew Jacob. He knew what Jacob was before he called Jacob. Remember? Before either of the boys were even born, God said, Jacob, have I loved? He was chosen. Remember, before Rebekah and Isaac even gave birth, God spoke to Isaac and Rebekah, and he said that the older will serve the younger. God chose Jacob before Jacob was born, and God knew in advance everything that Jacob would do. What does that tell us? It means that when God chooses, God knows what he's getting. That's why it says in Psalm 103 that he considers our frame and he knows that we're just dust. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Philippians 1.6. It says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Early in my Christian walk, this was the promise I would plead under my breath all throughout the day. I knew how messed up I was, all the things that I was carrying into my Christian experience. And I knew how hard a time I was having of of living the way that God wanted me to live. And I would just pray constantly, Lord, you said that you would finish what you started in my life. Please do it. Please don't give up on me. The good news is that when God calls, when God saves, he doesn't give up. And if he didn't give up on Jacob, he's not going to give up on you. You might be here tonight thinking in a place, you're in a place where you're disqualified. The things that you've done, even after knowing God, have disqualified you in some way. It's never the case with God. You're not disqualified. But you might be separated from fellowship with him. That's where Jacob was, and he needed to get back, which is exactly what's going to happen tonight. Interestingly, the tragedy in Jacob's life has set him up now in the place where God wants him. And so let's see what happens. It says in chapter 35, Verse 1, it says that God said unto Jacob. Don't you love this? I mean, take away the chapter break, and you read it continually, and Jacob has just chided his sons for ruining his reputation, and his sons argued back, covered in blood of the city that they just murdered. And they had this argument between the two, and without a chapter break, it just says that they said, should he deal with our sister like a prostitute? And then the next breath, it says, and God said. And I love that. That God is the initiator now of restoring Jacob and bringing him back to the place that he's to be. God spoke to Jacob. Isn't that hopeful? It gives me such hope to realize that God is ever faithful even in spite of my messes. God said unto Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, 
and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when you fleddest from the face of Esau, your brother. So God now speaks to Jacob and this renewal comes into his life. God begins to speak to him again. Sometimes people say that there's a different God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever thought that? You know, you read about the woes and the judgments, it seems, in the old, and then you see Jesus in the new, and you think, is this even the same God? And some have gone so far as to say that God changed, or that God matured, or that God came into an understanding. No, 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 the Bible says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord says of himself that I am the Lord, I change not. The Bible says that God is love. And that his attributes are mercy and grace. When he spoke his name to Moses, he said, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. That's his nature. That's who he is. And we see that he is the same in the Old Testament as we see depicted in the person of Christ in the New. In Jacob's lowest moment, God reaches to him in grace and he says, Jacob, arise. He recognized that Jacob was fallen, that he had become crippled. He'd become stagnant. He'd become unfruitful. But God didn't leave him in that place and say, now pick yourself up from your bootstraps and get going. He said to Jacob, arise. God spoke. God came to him again. Interesting, amazing thing that we see there. Well, what does God say now that God speaks to Jacob this time and in this place? Amazingly, he says to Jacob the exact same thing that he had said last time he spoke to Jacob. He said, arise and go to Bethel. That was the place that God had told Jacob to go at this point, probably some 30 years ago, when he was still living in Paddan Aram, serving Laban and and following after his sheep. And God had spoken to Jacob at that time. It's Genesis 31, verse 13. And God said, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed the pillar and where you vowed a vow unto me. Now arise, get thee out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. That's what God had said to Jacob 30 years ago. And Jacob had partially obeyed. He left Paddan Aram, but then he built a house in Sukkoth, something that God directed not. He then went to Shechem, where the tragedy happened, and he dwelt there for a period of time of years. And now after the mess of all that he's done within his life, God speaks to him again and he says the same thing to Jacob that he had said last time he spoke to him. Get to Bethel. Go to the house of God. You need to go back to the house of God. That's where you need to be, Jacob. There's some of you probably here tonight, I know it happens to me from time to time, that you can feel like you haven't heard God speak to you. You're not hearing God's voice. It seems like he's distant, he's far away. Let me ask you a question. It's a question I ask myself constantly. What's the last thing that God spoke to you? What's the last thing he said? Depart from this place. Separate from this lifestyle or this habit. Reconcile with that person. And for some reason, whatever God said didn't sit well with us. And we said, well, I'm just going to wait and see if God maybe gives me another option. Or if maybe he speaks more and, you know, kind of there's a back door into his will or something rather than doing exactly what it is that God has asked me to do. Listen, God's love doesn't change and God's will doesn't change either. And if God has spoken to you something that you're to do within your life, 
then that's the thing that God wants you to do. And he'll wait until you do it. And the only thing that you're losing is time. Because if it takes a tragedy, it'll take a tragedy, like it did with Jacob. But eventually God will speak again and you'll say, okay, God, you've got my attention. Now, what do you want me to do? And you know what he's going to say? The same thing he told you to do before. And I believe in our heart of hearts and the quietness of our person, we know what God wants us to do. But we resist. We're stubborn and rebellious. It's our nature. But I encourage you tonight, if you know what God wants you to do and you're waiting in some way, don't wait. Just do it. Just go there. Do it. Do what God's asking you to do. How long is it going to take? Well, he speaks to Jacob and he tells him to arise and get thee back to the place that I've called you to. So Jacob obeys. Notice in verse 2. It says, then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him. So the audience is twofold. First of all, his family. And second of all, the servants and all of those that work for and are traveling with Jacob at this time. And he said to them three things. He said, put away the strange gods that are among you, number one, and be clean, number two, and change your garments or your clothing, number three. Jacob obeys the voice of God, and when God says arise, Jacob finally arises. He stands up and he takes the position that he had set down and set aside so long ago. He resumes authority in his household and over his company. And he says to the people in his house, first of all, he says, put away the strange gods that are among you, the idols. You say, what? Idolatry in Israel amongst the people of Jacob? Yes. We saw earlier that Rachel, Jacob's wife, when they had fled from Laban's household, that she had stolen all of the teraphim, these idols, the household idols or the household gods of Laban. Now, I believe probably not to worship them. I believe Rachel did that because she said out of her own mouth that our father has spent all of the money that was to be for our dowry. Those things that she took were probably what he spent his money on. And she just said, yeah, okay, let me, you know, I'm not worth it to you. Well, let me tell you what I think of what you spent the money on. But these things were a part of Jacob's possessions. And they had had an influence on the people that were with Jacob. And somehow, even amongst his sons, there had become this subtle idolatry in things. And they became worshipers or relying upon other things other than the true and the living God. And Jacob says, listen, look at where all this has led us. It's time for us to get right, and we need to separate ourselves from every other thing that we're trusting in or devoting ourselves to other than the true and the living God. And that's what an idol is. An idol is anything that we hope in, trust in, rely upon, look to for strength, for help, for anything other than looking to the Lord alone for those things. And if you're in a place tonight when you know that you need to get back into the will of God, that's step number one, is to separate yourself from everything that's separating you from God. I love the passage when God met with Moses at the burning bush. Remember, he'd been following these sheep for 40 years. And finally, God comes to him, and Moses goes over, and he says, why is this bush on fire, but it's not consumed? And as he approached near, it says that the Lord spoke to him out of the bush. And the Lord said, Moses, take off your shoes. First thing God said, for the place whereon you standest is holy ground. 
You say, well, why did Moses have to take off the shoes? Because he was on holy ground, meaning it was God's ground. And what God was essentially saying to Moses there is, Moses, there's something in your life, on your body right now, connected to you that's separating you from me, from being attached to me. And it needs to go and be removed from your life. If I'm God in your life, I need to be God in your life. And tonight, God might say to you those things that are idols in you. The things, now we don't worship statues per se, like they were doing in this time then. But I think every one of us have idols, things that we trust in, things that, that excite us perhaps more, things that we hope in or live for more than the Lord. We're to put those things away. And it's amazing when we just obey. Sometimes we think we can't. You know, Lord, this thing is such a part of my life. I don't know if I could ever put it down. It's got such a hold on me. But when we obey, we find that God not only empowers our obedience, but he fills the void that's created by the separation of that thing from our life. And he brings us to the place where we literally say within ourselves, I can't believe that thing had such a hold on me. I can't believe that I loved it so much, and I can't believe now I hate it so much because of, God, what you've done in my life now that I've let that thing go or that substance go or that idea, maybe, the idea of a perfect marriage or the idea of a perfect job or a perfect situation in life. I let it go, and, God, you have filled, and I can't believe that had such a hold on me. He says, put away from among yourselves all of the false gods. And then second of all, he says, and be clean. Now, he's not talking about soap and taking a shower. He's talking about spiritually, be sanctified, be holy. Now you say, well, they didn't have the Bible in the way that we do. They didn't know all that we know about what it meant to walk with God. Oh, yes, they did. We read back in, I think it's Genesis chapter 25, when God spoke to Isaac and he spoke of Abraham, God said, I'm doing these things because Abraham obeyed my voice, my commandments, my statutes, and my will. God, God knew how to communicate to his people what was acceptable, even in those days before they had Genesis to Revelation. And God, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, calls us to be clean, to live holy lives. How do we cleanse ourselves when we're in need of cleansing? Jesus said, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. By the reading, attention to, and obedience to the word of God, we find that our lives are clean. Psalm 119, it says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. And as we allow the word of God, not just to influence us and wash over us, but to become the very way that we live, it becomes our mindset and our ideal and we walk according to his word, our lives are naturally cleansed because we're walking in God's holiness. And so we're to live and walk according to his word to be clean. And then thirdly, he says that they're to change their clothes. Now, I think Jacob was speaking literally to these guys that were covered in the blood of the men of Shechem. Look, look at yourselves. Change your clothes. But in a spiritual sense, he's saying, listen, we're not going to live this way anymore. And in an eternal sense, the clothing always speaks of the character. God said through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 61, he said this. He said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. 
In the Bible, the clothing that God gives speaks of the righteousness that's imputed to us through Jesus Christ. And what Jacob is calling his family to is to walk with God, to change your clothes, put away the fleshly garments, and clothe yourselves in Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself in newness. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and he said, put off the old man, lying, drunkenness, thefts, idolatry, jealousy. He says, put off these things. Take off the old clothes that mark Adam and the old man. And then he said, put on the new man, which is created after Christ Jesus in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, let every man put away lying and speak truth to his neighbor. And so the clothing in the Bible speaks of our character and what we're to be. What Jacob is calling his sons to here is a change of life from the inside out. Put away the other gods, be clean on the inside, and change your character, your person. And he stands up and then he leads by example. And then he gives his declaration in verse 3. He says, And let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. Jacob takes his stand. And you know what's amazing? As Jacob assumes that place of leadership within his home, his family looks at him with respect and they say, Finally, Dad, that's what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for you to make a stand and to lead us in the way that we're to go. And amazingly, God anoints the stand that Jacob makes and he causes his kids to fall in line immediately. They don't rebel and say, who do you think you are, you hypocrite, saying it to us? But they say, no, we know that what he's saying is right right now and they fall into line with his leadership. You say, why did that happen? Why is it that out of 12 of his sons, there weren't like six that said, yeah, right, dad, forget it but that they all obeyed and even all the people in this house? Why is it that they so willingly gave themselves to Jacob's stand here? Do you know why? Because Jacob was serious and he led by example and not by commandment. He didn't just say, look guys, you need to do this and you need to get yourself right. He went before them and he said, I need to do this and I need to get right. And I'm going to be the first one to put before the altar of God the things that have been first in my life. I'm going to be the first one to confess that I have fallen short and I haven't done what's right before God in my life and I've fallen short as a parent and I haven't been who I'm supposed to be. But look where it's led us. And in humility and in servanthood, he went before his family broken and he said, we need God and we need to get back to God. And there was such a conviction in what he was doing doing and who he was being personally that his family said yeah you're right that's exactly right and so they give him these idols they take out their earrings it tells us in judges chapter 8 verse 24 that that was a sign of the ishmaelites they had been influenced by ishmael one of the enemies of god and they were wearing these things that were symbolic of things other than god and they take them they say yeah you're right dad and they give it and where does he take it he takes it and he buries it under the oak amazing the Bible uses the words cross and tree synonymously. And what does Jacob do? He takes these things and he brings them to the foot of the tree and he buries them there. And if you need to get back to God, I'm not saying that this is like the prescription, you know, above all prescriptions, but I'm saying that if you need to get back to God, 
Take some advice from Jacob. Separate, cleanse, change your clothes, and get to the foot of the tree. Come back to the cross. Come back to the place where sins are forgiven and bury your sin there again. And it says, And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. So what was the outcome of Jacob's consecration, of Jacob's refreshed obedience and revived spirit? First of all, we see that God covered them and was a covering over them against their enemies. What was Jacob so afraid of back at the end of the last chapter, remember? He said, you've made me to stink in the eyes of all these other nations, and now they're going to come and kill me and destroy me, and everything's going to be a mess. He was so afraid of what the other people could do to him. And now we see that he gets right with God, and God covers all of that, and he puts a fear upon the enemies, and they don't dare touch Jacob or his company or his family. The Bible says that if a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And that's a truth. That's a promise. You might be here tonight and there might be people in your life that you fear. You might be in a young family and your in-laws or your parents are over your head about things, the way you're choosing to live your life and following after the things of God. Listen, you just worry about your character before God and he'll take care of the way that they treat you. You just keep your eyes on him. You might be in a situation at work where someone you're working with or working for is oppressing you in some way or giving you just literal hell in your experience where you are. You keep your eyes on God and keep your life right before him. God will make even your enemies to be at peace with you. We see that God did that with Jacob. He didn't have to worry about that himself. God took care of him. What else happened in Jacob's life now that he's right with God? It tells us in verse 6, it says, So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, he and all the people that were with him. And he built there an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now, amazingly, Jacob had changed the name of Luz to Bethel some 30 years ago, because God had appeared to him there. It was in Bethel that Jacob saw the ladder, the stairway, and the angels of God ascending and descending, and the Lord above it, and God spoke to him there. And he said, this is none other than the house of God. And he named the place Bethel, which means house of God, because there God showed himself to Jacob. And and Jacob made a pillar there, and he anointed it with oil, and then he declared, this is God's house. God lives here. But now, 30 years later, Jacob comes back, and he changes the name again, this time to El Bethel. El means God, and Bethel means house of God. Meaning he changed it from house of God to the God of the house of God. And oh, that makes all the difference. And what an amazing thing that has happened here at this point in Jacob's life where no longer is it simply about, oh, the house of God. I'm in the house of God. But he realizes it's not about the house of God. It's about the God of the house. I wonder how many times in our Christian life we think we're pleasing God because we're in the house of God. I'm in the house of God. I'm in the word of God. I'm doing the work of God. And everything is the whatever it is of God. And and it's, you know, it's a godly house, godly behavior, and it's a godly school. No, 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 listen. You're almost there, but you're missing it by this much. See, it's never about the house of God. It's about the God of the house. 
It's not just about the Word of God. Now, of course, we love the Word of God, but it's about the God of the Word. And if we come to the house, but we don't experience the God, if we come to the Word, but we don't experience the God of the Word, if we partake of the work, but it isn't out of a love and response and worship for the God of the work, then we're missing the entire thing. We're getting nothing from it. See, Jacob realizes at this point, God, it's not enough to just do things that you want me to do. You didn't call me to do things. You called me to know you. I think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He had the most incredible resume of any spiritual man that ever was. He says, I was a Hebrew, a Pharisee, tribe of Benjamin, a Jew. Concerning the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, I had everything in a row. He said, but there was one thing that I lacked. I didn't know God. And he said, whatever those things were, whatever was gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. And yea, I count all things loss for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Why? That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering that I might be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what drove him. I don't care about doing religious things. I don't care about boasting and saying, well, God, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm reading this, I'm praying this. God, if I don't know you, I've got nothing. And that's true for every single one of us. It's not about what we do. It's about who we know. And when we come to the place that it's not about Bethel, it's about El Bethel. God, it's you. Now we're going somewhere. And Jacob has come to this place. He builds an altar, not now, oh, to the house of God, but to the God of the house. And it says, he built an altar where God appeared to him when he fled from Esau. But Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak, and the name of it was called Alan Bethel. Now, I have no idea why this is inserted here or why it's, I mean, it's historical. It's when it happened. It's a mark of time. We don't even know when Rebekah's nurse joined back with Jacob and company. <laughs> it, it, you know, when Jacob had left, she wasn't with him then. Now she is. We don't know why. We know Rebekah's already dead, but she dies. She's buried. He calls the place Alan Bethel, which means the Oak of Weeping. But notice God's response to Jacob's consecration in verse 9. It says, And God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Paddan Aram, and he blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. It says that God appeared unto Jacob. Notice the language in verse 9. When he came out of Paddan Aram. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. wait a minute, wait a minute. He, he's not coming out of Paddan Aram. He's coming out of Shechem. God doesn't see that. See, when he was in Paddan, God said, go to Bethel. Jacob didn't go to Bethel. He went to Sukkoth. Then he went to Shechem. Then he went to Bethel, 30 years later. And God says, oh, Jacob, I've been waiting and you finally made it out of Paddan Aram. He goes, no, 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 God, we've got 30 years here. No, 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 you don't, Jacob. You wasted 30 years. And here I am in the place that I've called you, and now I'm appearing to you, and I'm ready to reaffirm, and I'm not done with you, and my promise still stands, and I'm still going to do in your life the things that I want to do in your life, but you lost 30 years. When you get to heaven, Jacob, I'm not going to throw it in your face. 
I'm not going to even play the tape of the house that you built in Sukkoth. It was nice. I'm not going to play the tape about the luxury you were living in in Shechem. And I'm not going to bring up the sin, the defilement of what happened to Dinah, nor what your sons did to the men of Shechem, the genocide and the grand theft. I'm not going to bring any of that up, Jacob. But you lost all that time. And I wonder how much when we get to heaven, time... We'll say, but God, I lived for you know, 70 years and there's only about 20 or 5 or 20 minutes on, on record here of the things that you have. What, what's going on? And God's not going to bring up our sin. But I wonder how much time we lose in partial obedience, in half-hearted devotion, in doing religious things but not knowing the God for whom those things are being done for. God recognizes him now that he's in the place that he's to be. And then God reaffirms the promise. And God said unto him in verse 11, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. In the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give the land. And God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place he talked with him, even a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Now, amazing thing is that this is the exact same interaction that Jacob had with God last time he was in Bethel. God gave him these exact same promises And Jacob responded in the exact same way 30 years previously. And the thing that I love about this is the sameness of God. God doesn't come to Jacob now and tell him anything different than he had told him previously. The promise isn't different. It hasn't changed. God's will hasn't changed. Jacob's worship hadn't changed and the building of the altar and the pouring out of his life as a drink offering. All of it remained the same. The only difference, Jacob has 30 years of walking with God, experience of life, and he's back in God's will again. Why do I say that and why is that important? Because sometimes we walk with God for a little while and we think that somehow he's going to change. You know, his word's going to change. His promise is going to change. His will is going to change. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you realize that most of the New Testament was written to believers. It was written to Christians. It wasn't written to non-Christians. Some of it was. I think John wrote his gospel with the unbeliever in mind, but also the believer. And much of the letters of Paul that he wrote to the churches, those were written to Christians. And Jesus said that we're to continue in his word so that we'll know the truth and the truth will make us free. Well, sometimes we read the Bible and we say, well, I've already read the Bible. I read that. Well, there's got to be something more. God, I want your rhema word now. I've already got the Logos word. I I know what Galatians says. I know what Romans says. I don't need that anymore. God, I need to hear the rhema word. I need to know what you want to say to me personally. I want revelation from you, God. Listen, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And anything that God speaks to me perfect personally is not going to be something extra biblical. He's not going to give me some revelation that's not already here in the word. It's complete. It's the full revelation of who he is. But yet he calls me to continue in the word of God, to continue line upon line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, letting the promises be reestablished and reaffirmed. 
constantly growing in the knowledge of who he is, him expanding not on what's here, but on the depth and the meaning of it as I grow in him and to know him more intimately and more personally. God gives Jacob the same word that he had given him before, just as he does to us. But Jacob is walking again in the power of God. Well, it says in verse 16, and they journeyed from Bethel. Just circle that in your Bible because it's just a breath in the text. But you've got to ask, why, Jacob? Why are you leaving Bethel? Don't you realize that this is where God wants you? You know why he does? Because he's just like you and me. And it says, and they journeyed from Bethel. And it says that there was but a little way to come for Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, labored. She had become pregnant and she had hard labor. And it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, for you shall have this son also. And it came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. Ben-Oni means son of my sorrow, but Benjamin means son of my right hand. Jacob overrules her naming of the son. And Jacob says, that's not going to be my last memory of Rachel. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. You say, what in the world is going on here? Jacob has gotten right. Jacob is consecrated. He's in the will of God. And now his wife dies? Yeah. Because sometimes being in the will of God doesn't insulate us from the processes of life and the things that happen. We live in a fallen world. And sometimes being in the will of God doesn't insulate us from suffering. We're going to go through things even when we're in the place that we're supposed to be. We see here in Jacob. It's an amazing thing that happens every year. We just had the church picnic and we baptized some 60-something people. And it's an amazing thing, the phone calls that come in in the seven days after the church baptism. It's unbelievable. There's always at least three, four, five people that call in that were just water baptized and their world has just flipped upside down. Somebody dies. There's a relapse. There's some breakdown. There's some huge tragedy or loss. Something happens. And we just expect it every year. And, and, and sometimes we even warn people ahead of time, like, you're really going in for the things of God? Oh, boy. Get ready. Because any time that we make a stand to be in the right place with God, we have an enemy and a world that's in opposition to our God and that isn't going to just lay down and let us take territory in God's kingdom and for God's glory. And we see it in Jacob here. Yeah, he's in the will of God. and Tough things are happening. It doesn't stop with the death of Rachel. It says that Israel journeyed and he spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. And it came to pass that when Israel dwelt in that land, that Reuben, his firstborn, his oldest son, son of Leah, went and laid with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. He doesn't say anything. He will later on. Reuben disqualifies himself from the right of the firstborn, in this action. And it says that the sons of Jacob were 12. You say, what in the world is Reuben doing here? Now, this is one of two things. This is either passion or a power play. And I submit that it's probably not passion. Reuben, a man probably in his middle 20s, in that part of his life when hormones and passions are prime. But Bilhah, Rachel's maid, is probably about 80. And I doubt there was this real... 
intimate attraction that was going on between the two of them? Maybe there was. The Bible will say later that Reuben is unstable as water, you know, and, and, and it could be fitting with the character and the type of person that he was. But more likely, what this is, is a power play. See, Bilhah was Rachel's maid. And we know that Rachel was the favored wife of Jacob, right? Rachel was the one that Jacob loved. And we already see that there's favoritism being shown towards Joseph. And now Benjamin is being born. And Reuben is probably thinking to himself, well, now that Rachel is dead, that makes Bilhah, her maidservant, the second in command because she's linked with Rachel. And thus it will be Bilhah's sons that will obtain the family blessing and the family inheritance. So Reuben, possibly thinking, if I defile Bilhah, then that will ruin that whole thing, and that makes the firstborn of Leah the one who can secure the prize and the blessing. Don't know possibly what he's thinking at this time, but Israel heard of it, and of course it's not going to work out for Reuben. Now verses 23 through 26 list the 12 sons of Jacob that he had from Leah and Rachel and the two concubines. And then it says in verse 27 that Jacob came to Isaac, his father, unto Mamre, unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. And the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac gave up the ghost and he died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of years, full of days, and his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. So Jacob finally makes it back to the place where Isaac was. He hadn't seen him in so long. And for some reason, Isaac was avoiding, or I'm sorry, Jacob was avoiding Isaac. He, he had come back into the land, but he didn't want to see his father. We don't know why. We do know that Isaac favored Esau, and maybe there was bitterness. Maybe he was afraid because of the um, issues that he had caused and the lie and the deception. Last time Jacob saw Isaac, he was wearing a fur coat and telling his father that he was Esau, someone that he wasn't. But now he finally does come back into the place where Isaac was. Isaac is yet alive. And chronologically, Isaac lives really about 12 years from the time that Jacob returns and he comes to him. And so Jacob gets to spend some time again with his father uh, before he goes to be with the Lord. Interesting thing about Isaac. Remember, remember, when, when Jacob deceived Isaac 30 years previously, it was actually more like 40 years at this point. Remember, Isaac thought he was dying. Remember, he, he, he called Esau and he said, son, make me some meat so I can bless you before I die. My days are up and I'm, I'm going home. It's been 40 years <laughs> and the guy is still going, right? And, and just a word to you here tonight, if, if maybe you're, you know, attending the Oasis meetings, you know, you're on the backside of that hill, you know, or something. Listen, if you're still alive, live. Live. If God's given you breath, if God's given you another day, if you're still here, don't put yourself in the grave. You see, Isaac wasted the end. No, 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 don't waste the end. The Bible tells us in Psalms, that even the old will bear fruit in their old age when they're abiding in the Lord. And if you're still alive, God's still got something for you. Pursue the things of God. Live. You might be in your golden years, but live like you're a teenager. Experience all of the life that God has given. Don't sell yourself out and, oh, I'm going to die, and oh, the world is falling apart, and oh, the millennials, and oh, you know, 
live. Well, we leave Isaac here, the, the toldot or the generations of Isaac finishing the whole thing. We're not going to read and study chapter 36. You can read it on your own. It's basically the history of the descendants of Esau. And it just gives the genealogy and where Esau settled and all that he did and all the people that came from him. There's one interesting thing that I'll point out just as we close uh, tonight concerning chapter 36 and what we see in Esau. We see that in a very short period of time, Esau's descendants produced countless children, eight kings and 32 dukes and a tremendous amount of space and power. But for all of that, do you realize that there was zero fruit? For all that Esau produced, all his power, this kingdom, these allegiance and alliances, there was nothing eternal, nothing of value that came from it at all. One of the amazing verses uh, in chapter 36 is verse 20, or 31, where it says that these are the kings that reigned in the land of Eden bef- Edom before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. And I love that contrast. Because what it's telling us is that Edom was spreading out like a green bay tree. I mean, he was just flourishing and kings and power was coming out of his life. When as yet for Israel, it seemed like nothing was happening. Jacob's got these dysfunctional sons. They're traveling around. They've got no roots. They've really got nothing to show for the blessing of God that's been promised upon them. And here Esau looks like he's just blessed and flourishing and flourishing. The difference is this. Edom, Esau, zero fruit, nothing eternal, nothing lasting. Jacob's roots were going deep. And what he would bring forth would be lasting and eternal. And for you and I, there's a lesson in that to understand. That in the world, it's very easy to bring forth flashy yet temporary and not lasting fruit. But in the things of God, the roots take time to go deep and the branches take time to produce their fruit. But the fruit that comes in the things of God is fruit that's lasting and not fruit that's temporary. My son Rocky's been trying to grow an apple tree for about three years. You know how big it is? It's about six inches. (laughs) And he's trying to bring this thing up from a seed. And he put it outside, and just the other night, one of the chipmunks got to it and just took off like the top third and just <laughs> gave the thing a haircut again. And he was so frustrated. He's like, man, you know, and I took him outside, and I just showed him the yard that hadn't been cut because the lawnmower's in disrepair again. And I said, look at all the weeds out there. I said, we've been living in this drought now for like all this. All the grass is burned up, but look out there. What do you see? You see weeds. They just, they need no water. They need no depth. But boy, are they a pain, aren't they? They're a nuisance. And and see, in the world, we can bring forth, but for what? But in the Lord, good seed, it takes time. It's cultivated. As we close tonight, I ask you the question. I say, where are you at in the things of God? Where's your family at? Worship team can come. We're done. But maybe tonight there's a call. Maybe you feel like you've been far from God for some time now. Outside of his will, wandering, Sukkoth, Shechem, 12 bloody sons, a defiled daughter. Nothing but excuses, complaining, misery. And the whisper of the Spirit of God tonight to you as you sit is arise. And get to the place that I've called you unto. And the proper response for you and I is to put away the idolatry, 
to separate ourselves from the things that we have allowed to creep in and take that first place of highest affection within us. To come back to God in innocence, in simplicity and honesty, and say, Lord, I need you not only to give me power over this, but I need you to fill the void that it creates to have it gone. And then to trust that he's going to do that. To come back to the place where we're cleansed under the washing of water of his word, to come back to Bethel, to the house of God, but even more than that, to the God of the house. And to put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ again, and to come to the foot of the cross and bury the sin there that we might walk in his will. Why? Because it's not about you and me. Because someday there's a baton in our hand that we're going to hand to a future generation, to the children that are following behind us, and we're going to be able to say to them, son or daughter, look at the way that I've run. And no, I haven't run perfectly. And no, I haven't run every day. And no, I spent time on the ground wallowing in my own misery waiting for someone to run for me. But son, daughter, it's Jesus Christ. It's eternal life. It's worth it. Now run. And what they're seeing in you is going to make all the difference in how it affects them in the future to come. And so, Father, we pray tonight as we close this study and we look at this man. We're so encouraged by his imperfection and by your grace and faithfulness to him. And we're challenged, Lord, by what's before us tonight as we realize how real your kingdom is and how high this call. And we're asking you, Father, tonight in Jesus' name that you would speak to our hearts and tell us to arise. And Lord, tonight we want to arise to that occasion and we want to lay before your feet those things that are unpleasing in your sight, the things that are keeping us back. And we want to come to El Bethel, the God of the house, and reaffirm, reestablish our consecration, our relationship, our hope, our future, our call. And Lord, we pray for our kids. We pray for what we're going to leave behind in this earth as the place of it remembers us no more. And we ask that you would make it real, Lord. Make our life real. Make it count. So we're open to your spiritual conviction tonight. We're open to your voice. We're waiting upon your word. Your call. Help us, Lord, in our weakness. For we're weak. And strengthen us, Lord that we might do your will. Maybe tonight you're here and there's something in particular that you need to just bring to the oak of Shechem to bury at the foot of the cross. As we sing this song about God's great love, I pray, I pray and hope maybe God would call you to the altar tonight. Call you to lay down with your hands before him, with your knees bent, your hearts open, and say, God, renew, establish convict and change. He'll meet with you right here. He never, ever, ever denies the contrite heart. To this one will I look, God says, to him that is broken and of a contrite spirit, I will not despise. Let's all stand together.